Well, um, today, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be. We're in the series simply called Ben's Reading the Bible, and uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be, and today we're wrapping up this series. Uh, it's been a, a long time and a long process because we had a couple weeks that I, we took off and interrupted, and, uh, and so I'm excited to, to wrap this up. All right, so today is all about the Gospels, and so I titled the message The Gospel. If you have your notes, you're taking notes, uh, we're going to jump in, and so we're going to go through the Gospels. So my goal for you in this talk, by the way, it is going to feel sometimes like more of teaching and then that kind of thing, but really the goal of the series is hopefully to help you, if you don't already, feel more comfortable in reading the Bible, and then when you open up the Bible, that you'd understand, kind of have a high-level view of what it is, because we put some surveys up last week, and we understood that the majority reason that people don't read the Bible is because, one, they don't have time, and two, they don't even understand what they're reading or they don't know where to start. And so really, that's what this whole series is kind of crafted around, that you would feel more comfortable reading the Bible, kind of have an idea, know where to start, and I told you where to start last week, which is a really good place to start, and it's three words in the beginning. Yeah, and you can start in Genesis chapter one in the beginning, or John chapter one in the beginning, and if you just start there, you'll be good. All right, so... Anyway, so today's all about the Gospels. These are the books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you turn in your Bibles, you see the New Testament. The first book is called Matthew, and it starts to go into this whole description of names and history. Uh, so that's what we're going to unpack first. So you got Matthew. So Matthew's the first book in the Gospel, and you write this down in your notes. Jesus is the promised king, or he's the son of David. So this book of Matthew is all about that. The book of Matthew, Matthew writes simply and mainly to prove that Jesus is the son of David, that he's this waited upon Messiah. Now, all of this matters because when you go read through the Old Testament or the law, which we've talked about in the first part of this series, uh, Matthew's setting out to really help people understand this is the one that Israel's been waiting for. This is the promised one. This is the king of Israel. This is the son of David. If you've ever heard Jesus referenced that way, the son of David. Well, Matthew talks about that a lot in his book. And Matthew's emphasis is that this is who he is. And he goes in more detail about that in Matthew 9, verse 27, Matthew 21. And you can read through that book and you'll see this pop up. And this style of writing is particularly important because Matthew's a tax collector. Remember, remember Jesus meets Matthew? Remember he's texting, collecting taxes from people? And so when you read his book, you're going to notice some kind of personality come out in the way that he writes. He's really descriptive. He's really detailed. He's an accountant. And so he likes to get into uh, the details. Something really kind of a cool fact, by the way, accountants were to be really good writers in shorthand, and so they could write really well, really detailed, really fast, because they would hear people talk, and then they would shorthand it. So Matthew's really descriptive in his writings. That's important to understand, because you go, man, when I read through Matthew, I see it a certain way, but when I read through the book of John, or the book of Luke, or the book of Mark, it looks a little differently. That's because you got a tax collector writing this particular one. Matthew likes to talk about money, because Why? He's a tax collector. He likes to talk about money. So he talks about money a little bit. He gets into that because he's into tax collecting money from people. So more than any other gospel, the gospel of Matthew quotes the Old Testament to show how Jesus ultimately fulfilled the Old Testament law, which we'll unpack a little bit on today. We're going to spend some time in Matthew. All right, next, we got Mark. You might have heard John Mark, or somebody say Mark. All right, so this is Mark. And his whole book, if you read through the book of Mark, it's all about a suffering servant. Right, this is where Mark comes in in Mark chapter 10 and says he gave his life as a ransom for many and he's a servant, he loves to wash feet. He talks about the service of who Jesus is 
And so this is who Mark. Mark actually is not, has never met Jesus, just so you know. There's one little potential that some biblical scholars will say that there's this right towards the end of the book of Mark. Uh, and Mark, by the way, I think is the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters long. But right towards the tail end of the book of Mark, he mentions this guy who's kind of like, Maybe, maybe it was him that's like knew Jesus, was around when Jesus was around, but Mark never met Jesus. So some people think when they read through the Gospels, these are the disciples or the apostles, and, and they're not. That's not true. Only Matthew and John were. But Mark and Luke never met Jesus. And so this is Mark giving an account. We first find out about Mark in Acts chapter 12. If you want to write that down on a side note somewhere, Acts chapter 12, that's where you'll find out the introduction to really who Mark is. Mark is actually a friend of Paul. Paul writes over half the New Testament. Paul travels the world telling people about the good news of Christ, and Mark is one of his companions. He's a cousin of a guy named Barnabas. Now, this is a whole bunch of drama. If you really want to get into the text of the New Testament, Mark ends up with an argument with Paul. Paul gets mad at Mark, and Mark gets kicked out of the circle, and so Barnabas is cousins with Mark, and so Barnabas and Mark go together, and they branch off, then Paul goes his way, then eventually they reconcile, come back, all happy family, but there's just a lot of stuff that you probably don't even know as I'm saying this stuff right now. You're like, what? What, what happened? Yeah, go read your Bible. It's incredible. It's good stuff. All right, so anyways, so this is a little bit of who Mark is, and he records, and some people believe that uh, Mark actually recorded Peter's words. So it's like Peter was really close with Jesus, and so Peter tells Mark, and then Mark's like, I'm gonna write that down. That's where you get the book of Mark from. All right, next, Luke. Luke is all about the son of man. You can write that down, that he's really all about the humanity of Jesus. Luke loves to describe uh, the human side to Jesus, that Jesus was fully a human. He was fully man, he's also fully God, but he's fully man, and so uh, Luke will come from that perspective, primarily, probably, because he's a physician. It's, it seems to be clear to us that he's a physician, he's a doctor, he's into health, he's into the whole human side. So he gets into human stuff of, of who Jesus is. So he calls him the son of man. He'll reference Jesus as the son of man. Luke also records the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you're like, oh, that was written by Luke. And Luke was actually kicked out onto an island. And on this island is where he gets this revelation, right, that we read about. And, my, and, um, and, we, and we get this revelation from God. So Luke also, side note, never met Jesus. Luke never met Jesus. Sorry, Luke didn't get revelation, John. But Luke never met Jesus in of himself. He's the same. Uh, something else I wanted to point out to you is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or not John, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, these are similar styles of content. They just cover the life of Jesus. And so you've ever heard of Synoptic Gospels? That's just Matthew, Mark, Luke. So these are the first three books. Then you have John. And John is my favorite because he is like so close to Jesus and super close and he's proud of his relationship with Jesus. And John actually is the one who also wrote the book of Revelation. But John, uh, he's really close. He's in the inner circle of Jesus. He actually he met with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He talks about how I was the best. I was the closest. He used to hug me. He used to hold me close and sit in his lap. This is all about John. So John ultimately wants to let you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the Son of God. And so even John starts out that way in his writings. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He starts to really unpack in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So John really wants you and I to know that he's not just the son of man, but he's also the son of God. So I want you to see how Luke says, oh, he's the son of man. John comes in and says, no, he's the son of God, and they're both true. Here's ultimately what you have when you read through the Gospels. Ultimately, each of these men write about Jesus from a different perspective while each shedding light on either Jesus' life, death, or resurrection. Now, 
I'm gonna have you write this down, then I'll explain why. Write this truth down. The more you compare and contrast the gospels, the more you find. And I wanna pause there and just kind of anchor into that for just a minute, because I know I went through that stuff really fast and that was intentional, okay? All right, so you've got these four guys and you, you say, well, what am I reading when I read through the gospels? When I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, what am I reading? I, here's, here's the whole key to reading through these gospels and, and not saying there's a right way or wrong way, but I would say there's a helpful way. The more you compare and contrast, the more you'll find in scripture. That's really important. So here's the best I can give you if you're reading through the scripture, if you've ever been confused when you read the Bible and you're like, what am I reading? How's this? Read through the book of Matthew, find a story, and then go search for that story in the other gospels. And then compare them and contrast them. And you're gonna find differences in each of these. And some will mention the same story and some won't mention that story. And some will put a little spin on that story, a little difference on that story. Why? Because these are four different men who are writing from their viewpoint, from their vantage point on what occurred, what happened, and what was said. You'll see a lot of similarities. You will not see contradictions, but you will see different views of that and help support that. And that's the best advice I can give you when it comes to reading through the Gospels is don't just read through Matthew and then Mark, then Luke, but read through them this way. Find the story in Matthew that you're just kind of anchoring in, that you're anchoring into, or maybe stands out to you, and then go discover it in the other three, or see if it's in there, or see what they have to say on that event, so you can really get back and get the full picture. It would be no difference than if you'd said, hey, you know, you have kids that come to you, you know, and they're arguing, they're fighting, say, hey, what happened? You don't just take one viewpoint and say, hey, what, what, what really happened? And then you go to the other one, what, what happened? And then you're extracting all of that information, and by extracting all that information, all of a sudden you discover more. That's where the scripture says, the more you seek me, the more you'll find me. That's where that comes from. The more you seek into this, the more you'll get out of it. And here's what's so fascinating. People have been reading the Bible for 100,000, I mean, people have been studying it in Scripture, and what's so amazing is regardless of how long you read this thing, it'll continue to reveal itself more and more and more and more, and, and to the point that you'll go, man, gosh, this is just overwhelming, and, and taking it piece by piece, it's just this incredible book, and so that's the best true advice I could give you if you're reading through the Gospels, make sure you try to find them and compare and contrast them with other text. I think that's so important as you read through the Bible. Okay, so there's a little high level. I know that was super fast. If you need to go back and watch it, good news is it'll be online. You can do that. Matthew chapter 5, this is what I want to anchor into today. Matthew, that tax collector, records for us one of the most famous sermons in history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard of that language before, Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus starts off with blessed is the man who, blessed is the person who. And the word blessed means happy. So this is all about joy and happiness. And so Jesus comes in on the scene. He preaches this powerful sermon. It's Matthew 5, 6, 7. You read through it. He's got so much to say. It's red letters in your Bible. You might have heard it or seen it. All right, so this is where Jesus comes in. He's preaching his sermon. And right in the middle, verse 17, Jesus makes a really important statement. And the reason why I have chosen out of all of the Gospels to unpack this one is because this verse really does a great job at connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. And if you ever wondered, should I read the Old? Does the Old even matter? Is the New Testament, what's the difference? The verse I'm going to read you today really helps connect these two together and why the Old does matter, and we want to understand that, and also the New matters, why they both come together. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes a statement. Matthew writes it down. He's writing shorthand. He's really good, word for word. Here's what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember the law? 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, right, all these laws, or the prophets, those who came in and spoke for God. He says, I didn't come to abolish them. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You say, what does that mean? We're gonna unpack it. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, what Jesus is saying there, he's saying, listen, every word that you've read about is true and it has authority. There's not one letter, not one letter that's out of place. There's not one stroke of a pen that is not from God's hand, inspired by God through men. That's what he's pushing into. Verse 19, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll pause. You have these religious leaders listening to this message, this sermon by Jesus, and these people were really good law keepers. I mean, they just kept the law. They even took the law, twisted the law, turned the law, put it back on the people, and he's saying, the Pharisees, I know you're so good at keeping the law. You have to remember his audience. His audience are people who are like, they're all about the law, and the law is what makes you righteous. It's all about the law, and the law makes you righteous, in other words, allows you to have right standing with God, allows you to have access into God, and kind of when the king comes, like this is all about obedience to the law. Jesus comes in and makes that statement, verse 20, it's so powerful, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus is about to do something. I think the Pharisees might be like, yeah, see, we're really good here. Think about the Pharisees. Yeah, see, we're really, we're really good. So you, gotta, you can't get to heaven if you're not better than me. And it becomes this kind of like this tension. But then Jesus, and I don't have time to unpack the fullness, but you can go read through it in the book of Matthew. But then, Math, then Jesus does something incredible. He goes, so let's talk about one of those laws. Let's talk about adultery. And he goes in adultery, he says, you know, if you commit adultery, you know, you kind of, you know, you don't get into the kingdom of heaven. If you commit adultery, you don't get in. And that's what you say. You have this law that says, you know, commit adultery, you don't get into heaven. And of course, the Pharisees are like, that's right, amen to that. And Jesus goes, yeah, 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 but, but I'm going to up it a little bit. I think it's more than that. And so Jesus says this statement, he's like, hey, I say if you just look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, the Pharisees there are like, Well, dang it, <laughs> you know? And, and so he starts to up the pressure a little bit. He actually takes the law and he puts a little more. And then he goes to murder. Yeah, murders. Yeah, they're going to hell, absolutely. They're going to hell fast. They're murderers, terrible people. And then and the Pharisees are like, yeah, murders, that's right. That's what the law says. You don't murder. If you murder, you go to hell. That's what it is, right? That, that, that's their whole heart. That's, that's the whole point. And Jesus goes, no, nope, no, nope, we're gonna push that on a little bit. He says, hey, if you've ever had hate in your heart towards your brother, You've committed murder in your heart. He like ups it, raises the stakes. And then he goes through divorce. And he goes through having oaths and fulfilling promises that you've made to God. And then he goes through these various scenarios and all of them begin to convict these Pharisees, these great religious leaders, and they begin to reflect on this one truth that, well, according to Jesus, I haven't kept the law. 
And they begin to go think, well, how in the world then are we going to be law keepers? And he's, he's pushing on this whole idea that he goes, and I love, and Jesus is such a good teacher. He's so good. And, and he shocks them. And, he, and they're just trying to figure out what is this guy saying? And look how he, he doesn't even land the sermon. This is like midway in the message. This is just a powerful statement. Verse 48. Here's how he wraps it up. So if you go read through Matthew chapter 5, look at Jesus' statement. Jesus is like, hey, if it, let me help you out to understand this because he's so practical. He's so good. He says, just be perfect. That's his sermon. He says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, just be perfect. That's essentially what we're talking about here. And the audience is stunned. They're thinking, who's perfect? To which Jesus is saying, exactly. Have to hear this. What, what does this all have to do with the law? Remember, this is all about the law. This is all about obedience to righteousness. And Jesus says, okay, if you want to obtain righteousness through the law, be perfect. To which every person who's listening into Jesus in this sermon, well, I'm not, and I can't. To which Jesus says, that's right. That's why I've come. And this is powerful to the people that are listening in and learning in. So when Jesus gives this sermon, I want you to understand, he wasn't giving a standard to be perfect, that you've got to be perfect in order to get into the heaven. No, what Jesus is basically saying, what his whole primary intention of Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount isn't to create higher standards. In other words, if you've lusted a woman lustfully, you're going to hell. If you've committed adultery, you're doomed to hell forever. That's not his whole message. If you've committed murder, you're headed to hell too. No chance for you. No, his, his, his whole intent, his whole purpose was, if you want to be righteous by the law, then you've got to keep the whole law perfectly. To which every person says, well, I can't do that. And Jesus pushes on. He's like, I understand that. So when Jesus gives a sermon, he isn't giving a standard that was needed to get to heaven he revealed the standard. You gotta understand this. He's revealing the standard to have access to a holy and perfect God. And what's the standard? Perfection. To which nobody could say, that's me. Which is why we need righteousness apart from the law. That's why you need righteousness apart from the law. So later on, a man named Paul some of you wrote this in the New Testament. He explains it this way to some people in Rome. And I'm going to read a lot of verses here, fairly fast. And he says this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Everybody say amen. amen. Woo. You don't have to wear robes and you can let your hair grow out. Amen. All right. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22. Powerful statement. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. doesn't matter. He says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Paul is supporting what Jesus is talking about in the book of Matthew. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. 
For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. You place your confidence. The word believe is to place your confidence into in Greek language. It means to put your confidence in that. So your confidence isn't in the law. Your confidence isn't in yourself that you can pull off a certain level of behavior that gets you into heaven. No, your confidence is ultimately in Christ and in the cross. He says you put your confidence in that. He shed his blood for you. He says this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back. And did not punish those who sinned in times past. He held back back the punishment from the previous prior to Jesus coming. In his grace, still being just, until Christ came. And this is so powerful. He says, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Righteousness is ultimately obtained through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, not through the law. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That's why it's called the gospel. So good. This is what Jesus meant by the statement when he says, I came to fulfill the law. So I just wanted you to see, when he says, I came to fulfill the law, This is ultimately what Jesus is getting at. I've come to reveal the truth of the law to you, that it's a way higher standard than you were trying to create. It's perfection. You can't have. So I'm making a new way to obtain righteousness. And that way, righteousness ultimately is through me and believing in my death, life, resurrection for you. Shedding the blood for your sins. And then through that, you are made righteous. I'm gonna give you four things that Jesus fulfilled and you can write these down in your notes. Four fulfillments of Jesus that help us understand what he meant by I came to fulfill the law. These connect the two. All right, number one, Jesus fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law and the prophets in that he brought full revelation. He brings a full revelation of the law. People begin to see the law in a new way, in a greater law, and he fulfills it by revealing the truth of the law. What? The standard of the law. So the standard for access to the kingdom of God is much higher than you thought. It's perfection. Oh, okay. That's what he does. The second thing that he does. Jesus fulfilled the predictive prophecy of the law. Those are the 300 prophetic words. I talked about these prophecies throughout scripture that he comes and he fulfills them. And so if you go read through the Old Testament, you find prophetic words about Jesus. Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. He says, hey, they were all pointing towards me. That's what it's all about. That's what the book of Matthew is all about. And all these prophecies point to me that I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the king. I'm the savior. I'm the one. That's me. Number three, Jesus fulfilled the moral and legal demands of the law. So he did fulfill them. He was perfect in every way. Right? He, he fulfilled the moral and legal demands of the law and the prophets And he fully obeyed them, and then he reinterpreted them in their truth. That's why Jesus was such a good teacher. Remember, throughout Scripture, if you read through the Bible, you'll find certain times that it would say, man, he was like one who taught with authority. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say that. It's like, this guy has powerful stuff when he talks. I mean, gosh, it's so rich. It's so good. Have you ever been in a room where a a pastor or communicator speaking is is like teaching on the Bible, and you're like, oh, gosh, that guy preaches so good. Have you ever had that? (laughs) <laughs> okay. thank you for making me feel better about myself I'm trying to feel better no impressed. yeah 
Yeah, I, yeah. So, but, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I listen, just me, you know, you listen to guys, you're like, ah, oh, that's so, why do I even, why don't I even read the Bible? You should just tell me, you know? And so I, I get that all the time, for, uh, not, for, not from you. I, 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 I learn from others who I'm like, why am I even doing this? But, but uh, so, you know, but so good. So when they taught with authority, what they're saying is, we've been studying this thing a long time. We've been reading it, we've been absorbing it. And he comes in on the scene and, and puts something to it that's like, didn't see that. I didn't see that. He just illuminates the scriptures and the truth of scriptures in such a way that he's just pointing it out and drawing it out, and their hearts are like, whoa. And it's just a powerful sermon. So he comes in and fulfills it. He reinterprets it, helps them get it, helps them understand the depths of it. All right, the fourth one, Jesus fulfilled. This is a big one. This is huge. The penalty of the law. And the prophets for us by death and the cross and taking the penalty that we deserve. Ultimately, he fulfills the law. Because the law was saying this is the way it's got to have access to heaven. What's the law say? Well, the law says you've got to be perfect. So what does Jesus do? He makes you perfect. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, shedding of his blood, for those who believe in him and put their confidence in him, makes them perfect. Simply through not their obedience to the law, but just their response to what Jesus did. That's the whole point of the fulfillment of the law. That's why Jesus came. That's what these all gospels are only all about. And so now here's Jesus. It's such a good temper. He gives a simple way to understand our relationship to the law. Matthew 22. And I started here in the series, and now I'm going to end it here in this series with helping you even greater understand these two great commandments. So Jesus does this. Okay, here's the trick. Watch this. I've got the law, 613 laws in the Jewish culture, right? So Jesus says, okay, the standard I've already set for you, I've told you it's perfect, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just really break this down for you. If you, if you want to just try to do two things, I'm going to give you two things to do. And if you just do these two things, you'll fulfill the whole law. Now watch this. Here's what he says, Matthew 22. Matthew writes it down. He's such a good writer, he's detailed. He says, one of them, an expert in the law. So now Jesus is in another conversation with a guy who's an expert in the law. This guy's like phenomenally super smart, super bright. Jesus steps up to the plate and he tested him the question. Here's the question that he was asked Jesus. All right, so he asked Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Look at the context of the conversation. You've got 613 options. What, which one's, the, which one's the, the high one? Which one's the most important one? Which one's the, one's the best one? And Jesus says, well, you know, the love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, right? Yeah, Deuteronomy. We know about that one. We talked about that one, the Shema. Yeah, we got that. He says, but then that's the first. And then he adds on a second. He says, that's the greatest commandment. But the second one is like it. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he pushes on something. I'm just going to give you two commands to do. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love other people. Love God, love people, love God, love others. Okay, now watch this. Just go try to do that. Tell me how you do. Today. Just try to love every person you see as much as you love yourself. Truth is, you will not be so successful. Because if you really loved other people the way you love yourself, 
you wouldn't have a car beyond today and somebody who doesn't would. Well, I'm not gonna give my car away or your house. All of a sudden, the, the way you feel right now is the way the audience felt then, like, well, that seems impossible to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and love people as much as we love ourselves. He's not giving a command in order for you and I to have access to heaven. What he's saying is, if you ever want to be reminded of what he did for you, just go try to love God and love people. Find out that you can't fully, perfectly, and in that very moment, be reminded of what he did for you. Now, does that mean that we should say, no, well, great, that I don't have to love God and love people. This is fantastic. Anybody at all, when you first initially hear that, you think, we're off. This is great. This is perfect. Anybody else, like, just tempted to think, that's great news, and it is good news. That's not the full picture of what he's getting at. He's certainly helping us understand, but we're certainly not off the hook to say, well, great, we get to do whatever we want now. So Jesus is saying, if you just try and do these two things perfectly, you'll realize you can't. Telling people to love God and their neighbor as they love themselves wasn't a way to get to heaven. It was to reveal there's no hope to heaven apart from Jesus. And by focusing on the man to love God and our neighbor, we rightly understand the demands and details of the law. So the whole law is summed up in those two things to which you can't hit, nor can I. But does that mean then that we just don't try to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and we don't go around trying to love our neighbors ourselves? Well, Paul addresses that very question. This is how we're gonna wrap up. This is fantastic. This is good news, right? This is great. See, I don't have to go, to, I don't have to love God. I don't have to love people. God died for me. No, Paul says, watch what Paul says in Romans chapter six. Paul says, well then, and he's going through stuff in Romans chapter five, Romans chapter four, he's really pushing on this whole thing about how God died for our righteousness. Romans chapter five is an incredible chapter about righteousness and all through Christ. So he talks about that whole thing, but we're all on the same page here. So here's what he says. Well then, what should we do now? Should we just keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And Paul in verse two makes it so clear. There's no debate. You can't pull out Greek literature that says, oh, no, no, that's the, there's no gray here. Of course not. Since we died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And then he pushes more. He says, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ in baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is so incredibly powerful. Verse 10, he says, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. Sin no longer is the master. There was once a day where you were doomed to hell, like you had no choice because the law is perfection, and you had no chance of obtaining eternal life. No chance. But Jesus says, I've come, I've made a new way, and now I've taken the sin from you, and you no longer have to live according to that sin. You now are freed from that sin. Sin is not your master any longer. And Paul, again, is pushing. Well, then, let's just keep sinning. No, you don't keep sinning in order to let the grace to abound more. Now, watch this. This is so important what Paul says here. 
verse 11, he says, when he died, verse 10, he died once to break the power of sin, but now he lives, and he lives for the glory of God, that Jesus did all of this to bring glory to God. He brought glory to God. You got to hear, he just brought glory. He wanted to just look how loving my father is. Look how good he is. He's bringing glory. Look how good the father is. Look how great he is. Jesus just pointing to the father, to the father. Look how good he is. And he would send me to die for the sins of humanity so that you could be deemed perfect in his eyes. Knowing that you can never reach perfection. I'll get you there because that's the standard of perfection, of holiness. Let's give glory to God. This is Jesus' whole point. Then verse 11. So you, Paul says, also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin. Don't live like you're in sin. Live like you're freed from sin. Right? This is the whole point, he says. And alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. It's going to try to, but don't give in to those sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have this new life. Now, when you just wrap your head around that, that Jesus would come to the cross and die for the sins of the world to make you righteous standing before him without asking you to do anything but to place your confidence in that truth. That's celebration. That's amazing that you would redeem us in that way, right? He's this redeemer. And he says, just, just meditate on that. And if you just do that, I think what happens next, what Matthew writes next is so good. He says, so therefore, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. So when I tell you that Jesus died for you, and he took the price of the sins of the world upon your back, and he doesn't ask you to be perfect, although that was the standard, and he knows you could never reach perfection on your own, and he says, I'll just make the way for you. I'll do this for you. I'll just take all that imperfection out of you, make you perfect in my Father's eyes so that you can obtain salvation through Christ, through me, and enter eternal life forever. And that way in eternity, all sin is wiped out. No greed, no shame, no hurt, no pain, no death, eternal life. This is what I've come to do. Paul says, that, it's that story. It's that Thing that Jesus did right there that makes me want to run from sin. That makes me want to give God glory every day of my life and not fall into the temptation of sin. And then when I see sin, I run from it. Why? Because it's keeping me from the goodness that God has for my life. How do I do that? Not by saying, gosh, I've sinned again. I got to somehow confess my sins in order to have justification in Christ Jesus. No, I'm already justified. Think about that. Think about somebody saying, I'm going to forgive you before you do what you do to them that needs the forgiveness in the first place. Now just wrap your head around that again. Just sink in this for just a minute. I know you're going to sin. I'm aware of it, but I'll take it from you anyways. Just imagine saying, well, thanks. I'm going to go sin now. Perfect. This is great. Come on. Just follow common sense. You'd say, of course not. Like, no. 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 That's Paul's point. No. 
The fact if you recognize what Christ did for you is quite the opposite. You will live every day doing all you can to bring glory to God. That's what the cross does. That's what the love does. It changes us. It gives us this new life and a new reason for living and a new hope. And it's, it's just life-changing in every way possible. That's where Paul fixes his heart. This is what is called the gospel. This is ultimately the good news. And I think the best news in the whole world. This is really the good news. And that's why it's called the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's all about the Gospel. And you read through it all, it's all about this story, this Gospel story about God sending His Son to die for the sins of the world. And then, man, whoever believes in Him is obtained righteous and deemed perfect and holy in the eyes of God. And I no longer have to somehow even think that perfection is going to get me to heaven. This is a loving God who sacrificed His own Son for you and for me. And it's that love that pulls me back and makes me want to do whatever he says to do and helps me follow him and trust him when he says to do something. Why? Because I just trust him so much and he's just so loving, he's so caring, he's so giving. And it's that love that compels me to live for him. This is what the gospel and the good news is all about. I hate to ask you to clap, but because we applaud in our culture when things really good happen, isn't that really good news? I mean, is that at all? Like, I'm just super pumped. I know, I know that some of you are like, I'm, okay, it's like 38 minutes, your time is up. But I'm just pumped by that. Like, that's exciting. That's fantastic. Did you hear what I just told you? Like, you're saved and redeemed by the love of Christ. And all you do is put your confidence, okay, all right, so I don't have to, like, get to heaven by myself. No, just put your confidence in the cross. That's it, yeah. That seems so unfair to the human mind. To which Jesus says, that's how much I love you. That's who I am. That's how much I love you. Yep. Again and again and again and again and again. My grace will abound over and over again. This is the gospel. This is what the church is meant to proclaim to the world. That's it. That's the story. And I've got to tell you this whole thing. I, I help you understand this. When we attach our faith to something, as we wrap up this series, we don't attach our faith to the Bible. We attach our faith to Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross and resurrected from the grave. In other words, what I'm trying to help you understand, and I'm all for the Bible. I'm talking about Ben's reading the Bible, and you should read through the Bible. I think the Bible is powerful, but you're not a Christian, you're not a Christ follower because of what the Bible says, but because of what a man did. It is not so goes the Bible, so goes my faith. It's so goes Jesus, so goes my faith. My, my faith and your faith is tethered to the death and resurrection of Christ. The Bible reveals the story. The Bible reveals the heart of God. The Bible is so good and all true and all scripture. God breathed and great for teaching and rebuking and correcting and all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, our faith is not tethered to scripture. It's tethered to a moment that happened in history where Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead. And the best question I would challenge anybody with when they read through the gospels, if you read through the gospels, you just kind of go through it and you just read it. 
here's the best question you can kind of sit back and ponder for just a minute. Just, what do you do with that? Because I know, I know what you're tempted to do. You're tempted to go read something in the Old Testament, read through some kind of thing, some slaying, some killing, some Noah's Ark, and it's crazy the fact that we teach our children about Noah, and, we, and I remember being in like, I remember going to church as a kid sometimes and these little sticky things, you know? And then like the, the flood came and then everybody died and then it kind of just breezed right over. And I remember sitting there going, everybody? Like, that's a lot of people. And you want me to come back and hang out with this guy and sing to him? What? Like that was confusing. So we don't try to teach about Noah. <laughs> it seems like I'm joking, we do. But it is kind of, you know, heavy. But when you, you read through this stuff, you get confused by it. Here's my, here's my point. Yeah. Don't go there so fast. Just What do you do with Jesus? This guy who predicted his own death and resurrection pulled it off and then said, this is the way to heaven. It's through me. What do you do with that? Because what you do with that makes all the difference in the world. The brother of Jesus said this, James 1.22. He said, do not merely listen to God's word, but do what it says. The greatest teaching, the best thing I can tell you is to follow what James said here. I think the, the brother of Jesus, he just said simply this. Do not merely listen to the word of God, but do what it says. When it comes to reading the Bible, it's the doing that makes all the difference. You can read through the Bible, know the Bible, read the scripture, study the scripture, and all that kind of school stuff. That's great, but it doesn't do anything good if you don't do what it says. It's the doing that makes all the difference. This has nothing to do with, remember, the doing doesn't get you to heaven. It's the doing that makes the difference in your life. And there's so much wisdom, and there's so much good content. There's so much to learn. There's so much to grow. It's amazing. It'll change your life forever. But it's the doing that makes all the difference. So don't brag about, let's not brag about how much we read. That doesn't really do anything, you know? We're not some exam we're trying to take. No, it's the doing that makes the difference. And it's the doing that makes the difference in your life because ultimately what happens is your heart begins to get transformed and you get eyes open to who Christ is and Christ becomes to live inside of you. It's just this incredible thing and your whole life begins to change. It's the doing that makes the difference. That's the best I can give you. I hope you found that helpful as you read through the Gospels. I hope when you read the Gospels now, you see these different guys and different personalities and different interactions. Compare 